Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. Right now we're in a situation where I consider it kind of like the heart of darkness. We have to make a choice. It's like Joseph Conrad's uh, book is apropos for this age because there's this darkness that's descended upon us. And it's descended upon us because there's some people who never got the memo, as it were. The world is changing. It's not your world anymore. It was, it was screwed up. It was bad back in the day. We made it better. But why are you insisting on going back? Because you feel entitled. So there's this sense of entitlement that we've always been fighting. That's what, to me, the whole cultural tension that exists is because there's some people who feel that they're entitled. Born in Panama, raised in Brooklyn from age 13, a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, a self-taught photographer who's captured iconic images of music, art and fashion over five decades, is this week's guest, Roberto Roban. In part one of this two-part interview, Roberto recounts the experience of growing up in a racially charged 1960s Brooklyn his self-directed education and passion for reading, the impact of his mother and aunt, and how his early exposure to Motown and the beat culture led him to embrace photography as his preferred form of self-expression. Roberto discusses the experience of being at the heart of documenting the 1960s counter-cultural movement and the writers, artists and musicians he's worked with. We also explore the commonalities of the movement with what we're experiencing with today's emerging environmental movement and youth leaders like Greta Thunberg. We also discuss how his curiosity for people led him to photograph musicians from The Grateful Dead to Dylan, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Hendrix, The Stones, The Beatles, Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, Amy Winehouse, Shadi, and Gaga. In fact, he's the only photographer to have shot all members of the legendary 27 Club, those iconic and groundbreaking musicians who died at the age of 27. Finally, in part one, Roberto recounts how his career pivoted into fashion when a serendipitous encounter led him to working with the legendary Alex Lieberman of Condé Nast. I hope you enjoy the humour, eloquence, generosity of spirit and expansive vision of Roberto Roban. Roberto. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Great to see you here in New York. Likewise. Well, welcome Likewise. to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for the time. It's an it's absolute pleasure. Before we get started, yes, we always talk to our guests about their upbringing. Now, as I understand it, you're Panamanian born, yes. but you came to Brooklyn age 13. Right. And you obviously came here not speaking English. Right. Talk to me uh, about that upbringing and the challenges you had as a child and the role your parents played in your in your development? Yeah, it was uh, interesting uh, to arrive here. It was, uh, for me, a culture shock because I came from the real third world. I mean, it was uh, a real banana republic, completely corrupt, um, coup d'etats constantly, a lot of insecurity, economic insecurity, uh, physical insecurity. It's not a safe place, but it was a fun place. It was a beautiful place. It still is in many ways. And um, arriving here as a young child, um, I was blown away and shocked by um, the first world, which is, uh, included things like escalators, which I'd never seen in my life, uh, buildings taller than six stories, hundreds of people on the street. You know, it was overwhelming. It was a sensory overload, basically, both culturally and physically. So it took a while to adjust. I never saw snow before, 
which is quite shocking. And also, um, very interesting uh, neighborhood I ended up, I landed in, it was um, Park Slope in Brooklyn. Mm. A little bit different then to what it is now. Yeah, it's a little bit different, you'd say. Bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, a little less of, Yeah, it was, it was truly um, West Side Story. Uh-huh. The entire neighborhood was balkanized. It was just, we had Puerto Ricans on one side. We had African-Americans on the other side. We had the Irish kids on one side. We had the Germans on the other side. And Italians, Italian-Americans. So and all, nobody got along with each other. I wasn't sure why, mm-hmm. what was going on, what was the tension, what was the reason, because we didn't, I didn't experience that in where I came from. Uh, where I came from was really uh, anti-colonial feelings uh, against Americans, yeah. the gringos. Yeah, were, you were united. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were united in one common enemy, both culturally and physically, was the Yankees. We didn't like them. And but then you come to, to America and you're disunited. And, and now I'm you? like, what the hell is going on here? I uh, can tell you a funny story uh, among many in the beginning. At one point, I had a, a one friend, my best friend at the time, was a kid from Spain. His name was Justo Arenas. We also, his, his father's name was Justo, so he was Justito. So we call him uh, Tito. He became my best friend because we both had something in common is that we didn't understand what the hell was going on. He came from Spain and from Madrid, and I was from Panama. We spoke the king's English, as it were, Spanish. So Spanish, the, the, the proper Spanish, and the Puerto Ricans didn't understand what we were saying to them. We didn't understand them because they spoke Spanglish as far yeah. as we were concerned. Uh-huh. So, and it wasn't proper, so we were kind of, you know, didn't like that. However, we had to belong to some group. So the African-Americans couldn't understand me because I spoke Spanish and had a Spanish name, Spanish surname, so they couldn't understand what that was. Like. We were kids, so they didn't have these the world view of being uh, sophisticated enough to understand that other people in other countries speak different languages, regardless of your race. Mm-hmm. So he and I became buddies, and at one point, uh, the big thing at the moment was the film West Side Story. It was going to have his big premiere. Oh, so it happened to arrive just at the time, around the time you arrived. Correct, they arrived right. around that period. And uh, the film was going to premiere a few blocks away in a big movie theater. So we all got ready to go there, but we were all nervous mm-hmm. about going because we knew that the other kids in the neighborhood were going to be there, the other gangs, as it were, the other ethnic groups. And uh, they were also nervous because we all had to meet in this one common ground. So just for anyone that maybe has, from a different generation that hasn't watched West Side Story, although it is going to be I'm relied, reliably informed by Bettina, it's going to be remade by a famous director. Yes. It's it Spielberg. Spielberg, right. Yeah. Correct. So, so yeah. the, the, the basic online premise of it is two gangs, two rival gangs. Yeah, two rival gangs and it's a love story. It ties it all together. Yeah. And the love story transcends the, the, the what I would call a petty, uh, irrational behavior of the, the gang. Okay. Uh, because love, really, at the end of the day, love transcends everything. So <laughs> that was the basic theme that I got out of the film. Eventually, sooner or later, but on that particular... But not that day. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't on that day. On that day, what happened was we all showed up to see this amazing film that was being hyped to death. It was like the biggest thing ever. So, uh, of course, they put all of the um, the ethnic groups in different segregated areas in the theater as well. So all of the brown people, the Latinos, the, the, the blacks, were all put upstairs in the balcony, and it's what we call a cheap seats. Hmm. And... Um, the other kids had to get along downstairs. The Italians didn't like the Irish. The Irish didn't like the Germans. It was, I mean, totally balkanized. Five minutes into the film, the credits roll and the beginning of the film starts. And all of a sudden, on screen you hear one of the guys say something about the sharks against the jets and something deprecating and they couldn't deal with each other. And as soon as that happened, it was like almost on cue. 
the entire theater erupted reacting to the characters in the film. <laughs> and they started throwing bottles at each other. They started throwing all kinds of projectiles. Uh, the switchblades came out. The zip guns came out. The chains, the car antennas. I mean, it was total mayhem, a complete riot. They tore the screen down. The cops came in with nine sticks and beat everybody in sight. So it was like, uh, it was unbelievable. It was absolute anarchy. So that's kind of the world I came into. Uh, the real West Side Story was actually happening in reality. The film was pulled from the theaters because it was also happening in all the cities, apparently. For me, that was kind of shocking to see how teenagers behaved. We didn't have that kind of uh, reference in, uh, in Panama. So, so uh, how, did you, how did you survive that coming from a very sort of a united? It wasn't person. easy. I mean, a, a culture could not identify with any one of these groups. Okay, but you said you had to. So you had to join. Yeah, you had to be. Presumably, you were in a Spanish. Sort of yeah, I was in a Spanish neighborhood. I was a Spanish-speaking neighborhood, so I, I identified with Latinos. So I became friends with some of the Puerto Rican kids. <clears throat> Eventually, my cousin, who was uh, what we call Americanized, he'd been here a few years before me, invited me one evening, one afternoon rather, to the Brooklyn Fox Theater to see a guy, a DJ, a very popular DJ on AM radio, which is the only radio we had. With the FM didn't exist then. And he, his name was Murray Decay. And he had this show on um, the Brooklyn Fox Theater with the Motown Review. The Motown Review was all of the, uh, the acts that were signed to Motown who were on this, this tour, this promotional tour for their, for their 45s. Their yeah. releases. Mm -hmm. So that particular day, we went there. being singles. Yeah, singles, the singles, <laughs> right. So we uh, ended up going there that day. The theater was packed to the gills. And for like, I think it was three bucks or something like that. You got to stay there all day. You got to see Little Stevie Wonder, Mary Wells, The Miracles, Jane Americans, The Ronettes, wow. who had the hots for Like they were like in the beehives and the short mini skirts and the, and the pointy white sneakers. And it was, it was unbelievably cool. I didn't, speak English, but I got it. You know, music is so universal. You really united, you know, united us. So I had the best time ever. That's incredible. All these Motown artists yeah. in one room together. All room together, yeah, yeah. So he had it over a couple of seasons. So I, I never missed a show. And so that was my intro to American popular culture for youth. So that was early 60s. And um, I think about that time, I decided I really wanted to explore that culture a little bit more. Uh, I was always inclined that way. <clears throat> However, it wasn't around very often. You could only hear this on the radio. But you were still at school at this point. Yeah, yeah, I was in definitely in school, yeah, sure. Catholic school, mm. in fact, St. Patrick's school. So, and that, uh, and that there's to well, come and talk a little bit about education, but that was a, a mixed school of boys, girls. Yeah, and but it was also segregated. We got, you know, we got along in the classrooms because you had to. And um, during the school breaks, you know, all the kids, the white kids went one side, the Italians went one side, the Irish went. I mean, it was always separation. And the weirdest part about it, <laughs> just I have to say, there was one girl who got my attention. I got her attention as well. I don't know why, but you know, there was this chemistry going on. Her name was Marianne and she was Irish. She had the beehive, like the B-52 beehive, yeah. the miniskirt. She was, you know, I thought she was hot. <laughs> I think she liked me as well. So we used to write notes, I used to write in really bad, poor English and fold them up and slip them to her somehow. And then, so one afternoon we got together. Without, without her bigger brother's fun. Yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. would see, she figured out a way to get to my place without everybody noticing. And. It was on. <laughs> it was a very sobrosa kind of situation mm. because if we got busted, it would have been yeah. hell. Okay. Eventually, they figured out something was up between us. Anyway, long story short, it turned into, uh, it became physical violence. That was the reaction from the other kids. So she got ostracized. I got ostracized. 
Uh, we didn't know what the hell was really going on. So the only answer for these kids uh, was violence. And I learned how to make a zip gun to defend myself. They, they also made weapons out of car antennas. And it became a little bit of a shooting back and forth. Did this seem just normality to you because it was happening at the time? Or did you feel threatened? I was always fearful and insecure um, because of the racialized atmosphere we were living in. And I was, I was fearful in Panama because of the National Guard and the uh, police in general. But here was the other kids, my peers. And it was kind of a weird situation to be in. You always have to look over your shoulders. You never knew who was coming at you for whatever reason. So it was a bit of insecurity all around for all of us, for them as well, because the other kids, I mean, just didn't like each other. I'm not sure why I still to this day don't understand that, but that's what was happening. So for me, the escape was really reading. I went to the library at that time early on. I, just, I found a library in Brooklyn. And I, in a way, I think it, it saved me. It really saved my life because we didn't have, we had books. I could read, I could immerse myself and learn English. So I was watching TV, learning English from TV, going to the library and, and, and educating myself. And presumably at school. They were yeah, school as well. But I found more, school's only for a few hours, but I kept it going. It's extracurricular activity. That's really what I what had to do. So early on, I um, found the fascination with the beat culture. I of ended course, up, so this is early 60s. New early York, 60s, yeah. correct, yeah, New York. So it was the tail end of the beatnik era. So I found my way to Washington Square Park. I got to see Bob Dylan early on when he was playing at Wait a the... Wait so you're in a very different... The beat, the beat generation was a completely parallel track to growing up in Park Slope. Absolutely. In segregated neighborhoods. Right. What was it there that drew your attention to the beat well, culture? Well, for me, I'm, I'm almost, It's not exactly No, there was no such thing as internet. But for me, it was... Was it word on the street? No, it wasn't word on the street. It was really my intellectual curiosity. Uh-huh. You know, I've always been that way. I mean, I had a, you know... It was, for me, it's all about learning. So all about looking out beyond my, my small world, my bubble I lived in. So I discovered um, Tolstoy at the library. I even taught myself a little bit of Russian. Early on, I used to read the Novodoske Slovo newspaper. I learned, I used to play the records from um, the Red Army Chorus and Band huh. on headphones and listen to it and phonetically under, try to understand what they were saying. I taught myself Cyrillic, the Cyrillic alphabet so I can read the newspapers and the books. So because of that, I discovered, you know, Yevtushenko and poetry from uh, the Russian, uh, gold, what I call the golden age of um, literature in Russia. So I, I learned all about this, 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 then Soviet Union, I learned all about Ukraine mm-hmm. back in the day. And, uh, and of course, you're not being taught any of this at school. No, 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 and this I is not about school. Your parents were talking no, no, to you no, about No, 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 not it. at all. By osmosis, I suppose, I was attracted to the beat culture. It was all about poetry, it was all about um, folk music was the thing that was happening. Peter, Paul and Mary, was they were my heroes. I got to see uh, early on Bob Dylan. I got to see um, some of the early jazz guys like Thelonious Monk, Charles Mingus, early on, uh, Coltrane. Uh, this is in the West Village? or This is in the most, well, the West, it was called Greenwich Village, Village then. Yeah, it was not yeah, West Village, yeah. really. It's called Greenwich Village and McDougal and Bleecker in that yeah, area. And a little bit on the Lower East Side, like 3rd Street, there's a place called Slugs. Mm-hmm. That was late in the 60s, like 66, 67. It's been a bit lively around there. Back yeah, then it was amazing. Well. Yeah. It's an amazing neighborhood. And so... I was drawn to that kind of uh, intellectual pursuits. <clears throat> I read up on, on what was happening in, in terms of poetry. I got to read uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's writings and his poetry. got to meet uh, Allen Ginsberg. I, fo- I actually have photographs of Ginsberg back wow. in the day. Uh, the first band I got to actually see that was 
what we would call psychedelic was the Fugs, uh, headed by Ed Sanders and Tuli Kofferberg uh, and Laurie Sy. So for me, it was all about intellectual pursuits having to do with uh, counterculture. Did you feel you were in a special time of history? I mean, you're there in the present, living that moment, but it was quite a defining period of human history in terms of, as you say, the cult, counterculture. I, I movement. would say, yeah, the counterculture was <clears throat> post World War II. Uh, it was kind of going on its own because um, nobody wanted to be the guy that uh, Ayn Rand described. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, nobody wants to be the guy in the gray flannel suit. At least the people I knew. It's a bit of a shame there's people now that do want to be like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of reversed itself now. But back then, that was not the interesting thing to people, especially artists. People who are intellectually curious, like myself. So, like I said, I ended up in that milieu and uh, learned a lot. And I kind of separated myself slowly from what was around me, what I considered to be just pedestrian youth culture, that, you know, mindless nonsense. They didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, so that was almost my inclination. And as an artist, uh, I developed, I, well, I should really say, I, I realized I was an artist at that point. I didn't want to be another blue collar worker. So I had to look at cultural pursuits, things that were more interesting to me and something, I had to find my voice to say something important. So did you establish some kindred spirits with people at school or were you very much a... Yeah, a, a, yeah, later on, later on in high school, I became, uh, have one of my best friends, uh, his name was Ted. And we're still friends today. We, I just wanted to see him recently to see him uh, celebrate his 70th birthday. And we're still friends. Uh, we met in 66, and he became my buddy. We ran around together, did all the stuff that you can imagine <laughs> back in the day. Uh -huh. Wow, must have been a very special time. What about what your parents' sort of role in all this? My my uh, my my stepfather rather he he couldn't deal. He didn't understand what the hell was going on with me. He just he just chalked it up to teenage rebellion. But I, I wasn't rebelling against anything necessarily. But my mom was cool. She was um, very generous in spirit and a great role model. I mean, she was an amazing woman and um, very 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 well respected in our neighborhood. And so she encouraged me. Uh, I became, you know, an artist at that point, like I said, and I was painting in my room, uh, reading heavy-duty books that kids my age wouldn't even consider. So she encouraged me, and I was always curious about my lifestyle out there in the world. She just asked me to be careful because she was always conscious of the racial situation. Yeah. And I didn't particularly use, see it as a, as a, as a setback. Uh, I just thought, hey, I'm just going to live my life the way it is. That's mm -hmm. it, you know. And if they, if they can't handle it, too bad for them but I'm just gonna be myself. And that's always the way I've always been to this day. So she was very encouraging, I said. Uh, my aunt, on the other hand, couldn't understand. She was like, what the hell's going on with him? You know, it's like, he's reading all of this tall story. What the hell's that, you know? Do you have any siblings? No, I don't. No, I ha well, I grew up closely with my cousins. I have yeah. a lot of cousins, yeah, but I was the only child. As you were sort of developing this interest in, it was in, in literature, particularly Russian literature, did you have any ambitions at that point? where you were going to take your career in life? Well, for me, it became obvious that I had to find, I was looking for a path to express myself and express, make social commentary. That was kind of my, my perspective on life. It's, I think I, I had something to say because I could observe what was going on. I was sensitive to the situation around me. And I would think about what I could say in a social context that would motivate people to think about the world that we're living in. And in that way, I was somewhat progressive in my thinking. Now I look back on it, uh, most kids you know, wouldn't even consider what I'm talking about. They're chasing girls. I was really going to the library. I, I was proud of the fact that I had a library card. And my friend's like, what the hell is that? You know, what are you doing in the library? It's like, reading, you know? It's like educating myself. So that led me to explore the Dada movement, the Bauhaus movement, 
uh, one of my big heroes back then was Salvador Dali, Picasso, and all of them played a kind of a seminal role in my life. And uh, Max Ernst was another guy that I loved. Uh, Francis Picabia, I read um, Le Bateau Yves. Uh, I mean, I was really pushing the boundaries. You're really immersing of, yourself. Deep yeah, in I was really immersing in myself and in, in, in culture. It's like your own personal sort of university education without correct, university. Correct. I wasn't spending time, you know, screwing around and wasting time. You know, I, I mean, I did that, but it was like, what the hell? It's like, it was too risky. There was nothing upside. I didn't see the upside to it. So I, I really enjoyed uh, learning. And uh, so I immersed myself in, in, in whatever intellectual pursuits I could, um, that I found interesting, whether it's music, jazz, literature, painting. And that was my world. That was my bubble, basically. Usually in conversation, we at some point touch on serendipity and the, the chance encounters, things that uh, affected the direction you took in life. Was there anything at that early age that set you on course to becoming a photographer? Yeah, I think um, seeing photographs, for instance, that were meaningful to me, like Bresson's work. I understood the decisive moment from the moment I saw it. It's one of my most coveted images. I, I feel like someday when I have, I can afford, I'm going to buy that one yeah. picture of the man leaping over the, the pool of water. That, for me, told me that I needed to be that guy, that photographer, that man who captured it and had the, um, the audacity to set themselves up uh, in opposition to what was going on around you. Instead of just following the trend, you went and created your own trend. That, that, came up, that just came to me early on. Which you were arguably doing, regardless That's of That's what I was doing, exactly correct. So when I saw uh, Brasson's pictures and some of the Embrassai, I realized that, that that was my calling. Because prior to that, I was painting, but I was emulating other painters. I wasn't creating anything new. I was learning, basically. I was, you know, duplicating what I, what I saw, what I liked. And I did a pretty good job about it. But um, photography really got me thinking about what I could capture in my world. So uh, as soon as I could, I uh, worked at a grocery store bagging like everybody else did. Oh, do whatever you need to do to get a few bucks. And I, I uh, was able to scrape together like $50, which was a lot of money back then. And I bought my first camera at a pawn shop. Do you remember what it was? It was a Yashica two and a quarter camera. It was a Yashica mat, that's what I call it. Two lens, twin lenses. That was my camera, my first camera. And so I loved it. How did you know what to buy? I saw it in a, in a pawn shop and I went in and I gave the guy $5 to hold it for me because I didn't want to have someone else to buy it. And uh, I realized that I could get a nice piece of film out of it. I can get a quality out of it that I wanted. And that was the, the camera I'm going to learn how to document my world in. So I carried that around for a long time and I was photographing everything I saw that was of interest to me. Yeah, that's you must, have, started. you must have some great prints from back in the day, from those I early do. days. I, do. In, I loved I loved film, I love analog photography because you had to be a real photographer. You yeah, have to understand what to do with light. Well, I was able to buy school? from Edmund Scientific. I was able to buy um, the chemicals I needed and I created a small darkroom in my um, in my bathroom at home in Brooklyn. <laughs> And I uh, was able to develop my film, learn to develop film, print the pictures, to learn techniques of you know, uh, real photography. Mm. And so that's how I got going. So that was, that was rewarding because I was not able to create something that didn't exist before. I was able to come up with an original idea that no one had ever seen. Uh -huh. So that's how I started. Incredible. Yeah. Before you, we get into talking about your evolution into rock and roll and, and music, have you got anything defining images that you captured in New York back then that you still look at and think, wow, that was a um, moment? 
I don't really know where all those photographs are at this point, but I did find a couple of old prints I made uh, back then. And for me, just capturing life on a street in New York. Yeah, you know, it must have been really interesting. Yeah, the life, the, the beat of, um, the heartbeat basically of um, New York City. And for me, it was Washington Square Park. So I was in Washington Square Park when cars literally drove through there. It was a, it was a, a thoroughfare. And we had to kind of jump out of the way so you don't get hit by some cars. I didn't eventually, know that. Yeah. <laughs> eventually they closed it down. But that was my world. So I photographed a few guys there. Um, one in particular that I was fascinated by, his name was Wig, because he had this huge afro. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the biggest afro I'd ever seen. It was like a topiary bush growing on this guy's <laughs> head, right? So I love photographing him, and he loved posing for me. And that told me everything. He was like one hip, cool cat. You know, that, that's how he described him as. Uh, he always had the cool chick next to him. He wore the black turtleneck sweaters, the sandals, the, the Levi jeans rolled up at the cuffs. So for us, he was like the cool factor. <laughs> and then... From that period, where did the connection to music and, and rock and roll and photography come in? Well, it was always in the back of my mind because, I, like I said, I was experiencing the early uh, early 60s folk scene and the blues scene in uh, Greenwich Village. And that was pretty, what we call now roots music. You know, we had Dave Van Ronk, uh, Mississippi John Hurd, Muddy Waters, people like that. B.B. Uh, King, once in a while he would play. And that was kind of the roots of rock and roll. So when electric rock and roll started to happen, right after Bob Dylan did his thing, that took my interest to another level in terms of music. And for me, going out to San Francisco, hitchhiking out to San Francisco, was a huge revelation because the scene in New York was basically kind of underground. San Francisco was wide open. I mean, the hate, mm, that's why I yeah. ended up, obviously, the first place to land was a hate and um, that scene was just burgeoning with uh, energy. This is very different energy than New York. It was more playful, it was more outdoors, it was more um, experimental as it were, in a different kind, in a sensory way. Mm. As of New York was more intellectual, kind of gritty. It's a city. Yeah. Had a but different feeling. Pro probably also some somewhat chemically fueled. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was about to say that. That's one of the things that happened early on for me is that I ended up uh, at the acid test. Mm. And my first place I ended up was uh, living in a house, ended up uh, crashing, basically, at a house uh, owned by a guy named Gavin Arthur. And Gavin was this astrologer for all of us. He was like this teacher who gave us uh, a little bit of guidance. So we ended up there, and that happens to be the same uh, house, uh, Victorian, in which uh, Neil Cassidy lived. Oh. So I got there, and I actually stayed in his attic. He was above, above us uh, in the attic room with his wife. I think her name is Carolyn, if I'm not mistaken. I, I forget her, what her name is. So I got there early on when That's acid tests. to cross paths with yeah, Ginsburg yeah. and Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, I was at the cusp but of not, all of that. not Kerouac. Kerouac was around. I missed him a couple of times. He was in New York, and then I, I saw him. Um, I missed him in San Francisco City Lights Bookstore because he came there to, to, do, to read. But I did hang with uh, for a minute with, with Neil. And Neil was a speed rapper, which I was fascinated by. I had to try to keep up with him because he was all over the place with stream of consciousness and he was always laying it out, laying it out thick. And every once in a while, he'd always throw some really interesting little lines that you had to pick up on and follow that and go somewhere intellectually speaking. So uh, shortly after that, unfortunately, he passed away. He ended up uh, dead on the tracks, as it were, in Mexico. But uh, I got to San Francisco at the time when the uh, acid tests were burgeoning, um, the early years of the Fillmore, the Avalon, 
all of that was happening for me, um, Longshoreman's Hall. So I got to see the Grateful Dead, uh, the beginnings of their career, uh, on uh, the beginnings of their long, strange trip, as it were. And they became my friends, um, especially Jerry. He and I hit it off, oh. and so I had access to the band, and I shot lots of pictures of them. Yeah, I've early seen some on. of them. They're, yeah, yeah. they're incredible. Yeah, so uh, in fact, some of them were used at the beginning of the, uh, the film Long Strange Trip. Mm. You know, so my images are in there. So I, was, uh, I happened to show up, I don't know why, but that's just the way the scene developed, and I was always at those places to see and observe. So I was always, uh, I became, I think I became aware of being a professional voyeur. Just, I'm intrigued about one thing. You carved your own path at school and in your community by focusing on education and reading and right. evolving and exploration and driving your, driven by your curiosity. Mm -hmm. But you also seem to be having this amazing capability to be in the right place at the right time and connect with people and build relationships. Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting because question. There's a lot of people could be in that scene yeah, and yeah. never end up with the Grateful Dead and, and Jerry Garcia? Well, I think I, I have to give credit to my mom in that regard. Um, I, I saw my mom, she's a great role model for me. I saw my mom relate to just about anybody who walked in her restaurant. She had a restaurant for a while, for like 53 years in Brooklyn. And she was a very generous person. And I kind of picked up on that of being, I guess, interested in other people mm -hmm. and see what their story was and just being curious and being friendly and being nice and being nice to everyone, being kind to everyone. And that's what I learned. Okay. Um, and important as well for someone with a camera. I mean, there were a lot. Yeah. Not exactly a time when people were walking around with their phones taking shots. Yeah, there was no such thing, but I was, I had access. But to get someone to trust you, to put a camera in their face yeah. and capture well, I learned, real moments of I life. learned to be somewhat, I tried to keep myself in the background. I was not one of those people who were, you know, talking about themselves or being showy or I was always sitting back and watching, observing. I was a voyeur. To many, I'm still am. So I wanted to see. I was interested in human behavior, mm -hmm. uh, and see what people are doing and what what's going on. And I was accepted that way. And I, I fit in, and I was I felt comfortable in just about any situation I was in. And that's always been my that's always been true in my life. I mean, I've been through my career. Uh, I turned professional in I would say '67 when uh, Jimi Hendrix actually paid me a hundred dollars for a photograph, uh, proof sheets I did of him early on the day. So that was my turning point. And so since that moment on, I've been in situations with uh, big-name designers in Paris and with Valentino Armani, um, Jean-Paul Gaultier, uh, Christ, uh, not Christian Dior, um, uh, Christian Lacroix, and I feel comfortable. I, I don't think about it necessarily as, oh, I'm sitting with this guy. No, whatever. I'm, I'm just there. And uh, they accept me, accept them. There was no conflict, no tension. And that's kind of how I am. I'm not starstruck. Mm -hmm. you know, I just treat people like people. So, I mean, you've mentioned your curiosity, and like you're saying there, that people are people, and, and there must be something that that creates a draw toward you, that people can feel your sense of interest in them. Is that through your voice or through your, the images you capture? And then when people see them, it resonates with them. I suppose it resonates with them. I mean, I try to capture the image as it is, without any varnish, without any gloss. I mean, I learned how to do the gloss because I have to, because for commercial yeah. reasons, art and commerce marry. But for me, it was just capturing that moment uh, in unguarded situations and uh, without being threatening, without being judgmental. And people tend to relax around me and, and reveal themselves. They don't know they're revealing them, themselves of what they are.
and I, you know, I know when to hit that shutter on a camera. Uh, and that's, again, like going back to the era of the decisive moment mm-hmm. when that image is, that's when you're supposed to take it. Were you aware at the time when you, you were moving through circles of rock legends, were you mm-hmm. aware that you were part of something genuinely groundbreaking? Uh, oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt, because I was... Or did they just seem like just normal folk at No, the they, were, they were above normal. I mean, these guys, everybody that I met, met you know, they, were, they meant something to the culture and they were, they were adding to it. They were uh, originals. Mm-hmm. They had something that was real to say, something that was in many ways, how should I say, in, in many ways they were canaries in the, uh, in the mine. Yeah. They were talking about things that needed to be talked about things that needed to be looked at, things that needed to be considered. So for me, they held an importance that I thought I needed to document. I didn't know what I was going to do with the images. <laughs> I had no clue. But for me, it was recording it. And that was my job. I couldn't play a guitar, but I could record what was going on around me. When you were being commissioned, presumably by the artists and their management, to go on tour with them to take images, were they right. being published in magazines? Yeah, the they time? were being published at the magazine at the time. They were all seminal image uh, magazines back then, like Rolling Stone, Crawdaddy, we had the East Village Other, an early magazine. We had the Oracle in San Francisco. They didn't pay anything. I mean, if you got a dollar for your picture, you're lucky. But it was all about documentation of our culture, and it was also about being able to advance ideas and philosophies that we were feeling. You know, it was a consciousness of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And it became obvious that we had a big effect on, on, uh, on society in general because the government started to crack down. They were noticing that kids were thinking they, and that was the dangerous thing. They were pushing the envelope because the status quo was really not satisfying to us. We had racial issues. We had feminist issues to look at. We had the war in Vietnam. We had a lot of things that we were looking at that were wrong. We just know it's wrong and we need to change it. That's what was happening. It was a revolution uh, worldwide, but it was centered around like San Francisco and New York, Paris to some degree, Amsterdam, London, certainly. So we had something to say and we were going to say it regardless. Okay, it was fearlessness. Mm-hmm. That's what we had. Okay, and I, I kind of miss that today because to me, we are at a place where we were back then. I was like, about to ask you. I'm just saying, are you seeing a sort of a, a, an arc? An arc. Uh, yeah, it's, it's where we're seeing the yeah. emergence of a, a new youth for question. Uh, yeah, that's the new youth that's being aware of what that's what's wrong mm-hmm. and addressing it in a very wonderful way. I mean, our latest person I love, I absolutely love, is Greta yeah. from. Um, Sweden. Uh, yeah, Sweden. She's one of those people like us that saw that something is wrong and she's going to address it. Yeah. Come hell or high water. And she's in your face. Honestly, and you can't deny her. You can't deny what she's saying is correct. Mm-hmm. You can pretend, you can be willfully ignorant, but you can't deny it. Okay. And so that was us back then. She's that person today. So to go back to that, that period. Uh, seminal years from let's say the 67 through to about let's say early 70s mm-hmm. what what brought to the end that cult, counter-cultural movement that re- youthful rebellion what brought it to an end yeah why do you think it ended why i do don't think, think it really ended i think it transitioned i wouldn't call it an end at all because it's still around we're still dealing with a lot of those same issues today we've moved certainly and now we have you know men are able to marry each other women are able to marry each other if they want to um we have had a black president you can wear your hair blue green yellow whatever the hell you want to do you can you know do whatever you want to because we broke those grounds we were able to show that hey the world is still spinning regardless of the fact that i married a woman who's white or that I married a guy that I love, or, or um, any such thing that we couldn't do before because of some artificial construct. Yeah. Well, we broke all of those rules. 
and the world was still spinning. Nothing happened. That was, you know, the world didn't explode, which was this giant fear. So the fact that we were able to go through all of the changes, to be physically beaten in some cases, to be killed, to be harassed, to be called names and all, because of why? We don't know, like, what the hell? Why can't you do that? What's, what, what's the problem? It's still going on, and right now we're in a situation where I consider it kind of like the heart of darkness. We have to make a choice. It's like Joseph Conrad's uh, book is apropos for this age because there's this darkness that's descended upon us, and it's descended upon us because there's some people who never got the memo, as it were. The world is changing. It's not your world anymore. It was, it was screwed up. It was bad. Back in the day, we made it better, but why are you insisting on going back? Because you feel entitled. So there's this sense of entitlement that we've always been fighting. That's what, to me, the whole cultural tension that exists is because there's some people who feel that they're entitled. And to me, they're entitled because they're overcompensating for their lack of self-confidence, uh, because of their lack of sense of compassion for others. And somehow they think that if they are in control, the world is a better place. Uh-huh. It really is not. It belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to any one particular group. So. A couple of questions, maybe an observation. At that time, in the 60s and early 70s, we were seeing the emergence, obviously, of a, the impact of LSD and a, and a collective consciousness that the world was different to maybe what we necessarily see in the in our conscious everyday world. Mm-hmm. In a sense, that did wane because of the changes in, in laws and, and the criminalization of, of that class of drug. Right. But I think we are seeing an emergence now of a much more global collective consciousness that right. the world is closer now mm-hmm. in spirit to that that small bubble yeah. as people existed in Paris and in, in San Francisco and parts of New York right. that were seeing the world in a different way, but then it it was quietened, and now we're seeing a resurgence of it. But obviously, against a massive pushback from the the status quo and the, these people that are trying to retain power. Well, it's again, it's the same cycle again. So, <clears throat> part of what was happening in the '60s with drugs, psychedelics, especially, was there was a fun factor. That's a huge part of it. It was fun. We were exploring. It was inner space. That's what you're exploring. And we're re- things are being revealed to us about the way this 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 artificial construct is 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 put together by those who feel entitled to control others. And when we did these drugs like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, um, peyote, these things freed you up. Just like Aldous Huxley spoke about, it was really yeah. opening up the doors of perception. So you were able to step into a place that was always there. We weren't inventing anything new, but we were seeing things for what they really are, which is what the status quo couldn't handle because they have you under control in ways of, in subtle ways of, for instance, it was rebellious to walk around with an afro. It was rebellious to walk around wearing Levi's. Somehow that was offensive to them. Unless you had a crew cut, wore a, a suit, and a tie, somehow you dressing the way you felt like dressing was somehow an affront to society. Like, why? How is that possible? So when you had someone like Ken Kesey coming around to popularize the fun side of psychedelics, and you have on the other side of the coin, you have Timothy Lear and Richard Alpert talking about the inner world of meditation and um, 
Eastern philosophies like Zen Buddhism, you combine all these various elements together, you have a, uh, you have a virtual explosion of people exploring themselves, opening up these doors of perception and seeing the world through different eyes. Usually, you know, kaleidoscopic <laughs> eyes with a soundtrack by the Grateful Dead at a Quicksilver Messenger service. So you start open up the world having more fun and they couldn't handle that. They could not understand why we're having so much fun. And we wanted the world to have fun. We wanted the, the fun factor was very important. Everybody wants to laugh and play and be happy and be creative. People just want to get up in the morning, go to work and have a nice life. And that's what we're offering people to be able to do. Be whoever the hell you want to be without hurting someone else. Be kind to each other. So they couldn't handle that because that really broke the structure down. I mean, just consider it. It was a little bit over 50 years ago that in Virginia, a couple, by, by ironically called, they're, they're, the couple is the loving couple, they became the first people who actually legally were able to marry his white guy and a black girl. It's like, what, why can't you do that? What, what does it say you can't do this? They actually codified that bullshit, okay? In law, so we were breaking all of these doors down, and drugs and like psychedelic drugs really had a role to play. And I'm glad it was there for that us at the time because it was all kind of a, a perfect storm. Had it happened early in the 20s, it would not have been quite as effective and had the impact it did. I mean, we had the Paris Commune, we had um, early on with Gertrude Stein, the Paris um, expatriates doing wonderful things, uh, but they were using things like laudanum, opium, and, and other kind of drugs that kind of, to us, were downers, mm -hmm. uh, alcohol. But uh, psychedelics really freed us in a lot of ways, in a number of ways, and we're still having those impacts today. What's your view of the fact we're seeing the emergence of microdosing now and people getting access to? Yeah, it's, see, it's, it's a very, it's a very kind of, um, I call it kind of a gentrified uh, uh, acid test. <laughs> it's kind of like, all right, we have, we, we, you know, I listen, I was, I was around in an era when we had real coffee shops, uh -huh. like Cafe Borgia, Cafe Figaro here in, uh, in New York. We had a place where you sat down, you listened to poetry, you heard people reading deep and interesting uh, philosophies and drinking coffee, okay? And going out and smoking an occasional uh, um, joint. And now, and, and, and now we have Starbucks, which is like a corporate version of what we had, but you know, we had the real deal. Cafe Borgia still is around, I thank God. Figure is long gone. But the idea was that you were able to explore, open up yourself, mm -hmm. and, and, and derive enjoyment from your life beyond just working every day. And that's what we're trying to push here. Okay, the idea that you could be a full human being, whatever the hell that means, you get to decide what that is, what that looks like. So for me, uh, it was exploring my capabilities as an artist, which I got to do. I got to photograph some of the most amazing people. I saw an amazing scenes of music and, and situations that are priceless. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> as a result, my archive is quite deep. I still have a lot of the images I shot back in the day. So now today, these days, I'm now uh, with my creative partner, Claudia. She and I are now using my old images in new and different ways uh, that I couldn't do 20, 30 years ago because of new digital technology that we employ uh, together as artists. And so we're able to bring the past back, but in a, a new creative way. And people resonate. People re react to these things in a really positive uh, and enjoy what we do. And we're communicating that the past is significant in a way you learn from that, but we also need to advance it. We don't want to live in that little bubble in the past, but we want to go forward with it. Uh, and so we're able to bring new uh, life, let's say, to the old photographs I've shot. So for people maybe haven't encountered some of your back catalog, 
um, before you explain how you're bringing it to life in, in new formats, can you just give us a, 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 a brief overview of the types of bands and experiences oh, you've captured? Oh, yeah, it's quite, quite. I mean, I know it's pretty. It's, it's a, quite it's a, a variety a long of images. List of yeah, so, the, the, you know, I got, like I said, I got to see early jazz, some of the, the, the jazz giants like um, Coltrane, Sun Ra. Miles Davis, um, Cannonball Adderley, Carmen McRae, Deezer Gillespie, David Fathead Newman. I got to see the early, uh, I shot the early uh, reggae heroes, I call them, like Jimmy Cliff, Toots and the Maytals, Bob Marley, Gregory Isaacs. Uh, in folk, I got to work and shoot uh, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Uh, who I loved, absolutely loved, Procol Harum, The Beatles, uh, The Animals, Rolling Stones, Jim Morrison. I spent a lot of time with him talking. I love Jim. That must have was, been something special. Jim was a brain. Yeah. <laughs> Jim was a walking brain in leather, leather, leather jeans. Can you imagine if you brought together Neil Cassidy and Jim Morrison? Uh, yeah, yeah, we got, be... you know, across all of those bridges crossed yeah. in my life. Um, Janis Joplin certainly got the photograph. Sade, uh, Amy Winehouse, um, who else? Uh, Gaga. Gaga, certainly Michael Jackson, Nelson Mandela, Andy Warhol. That was a whole other scene in New York. That was quite, <laughs> quite interesting at the factory days, factory years. Basquiat, who else? And unlike Keith a lot Aaron. of them, you survived. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get to the 27 Club. I didn't want to be part of that world. So <laughs> <laughs> I happen to be, ironically, I'm the only photographer. Uh, who's photographed the entire seven, 27 Club. From, uh, Kurt, uh, just about all of them. I got them all. Um, and so the hip-hop scene came around. I was there for that as well in the very beginning with LL Cool J, uh, Slick Rick, Run DMC, the Beastie Boys. Because um, so, uh, a lot of photographers would be, not pigeonholed, but they'd be deemed to be, this is a rock and roll photographer, not hip-hop. But you straddle all these Well, to me, see, I w I'm interested characters. in people. It's not so, so much a genre per se, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's my curiosity about people. And so I moved, uh, I enjoyed moving from one genre to the other, partly because of my work, you know. I'm, I became pretty good at what I do. So I was hired by a lot of uh, record labels, publications, the artists themselves. But after a while, I kind of, honestly, I became kind of bored with it because I've seen it all. I've been there, and it's like, oh, my God, it's long nights. and It was taxing, mm -hmm. to say the least. So I developed uh, an interest more in fashion. I, I started to see fashion as something I really want to explore and look at because as part of my, my development as an artist and be curiosity, I realized that there was more to photography than music, documenting music. So I looked at fashion as something that I wanted to explore. So for me... The biggest influences I could think about was really someone like Helmut Newton and uh, Guy Bourdin, Richard Avedon early on, uh, David Bailey. People like that to me were important because they were also documenting their world. And mm. as a documentarian, that was interesting to me. And you're around beautiful women, beautiful clothes. Uh, there was a glam side to it that I thought was wonderful. And it was a lot of hard work, but I, I immersed myself in it because at one point when I moved to New York in 1979, I was living uptown, and um, my neighbor across the hall from me was a wonderful lady named Susan, Susan Wolf, And she was working on a book with uh, a man, the legendary uh, Alex Lieberman. And his side gig was really uh, art. He loved, he was a sculptor. So Alex um, Lieberman was... To me, God, he was the man who ran all of Condé Nast. He was the creative director. So one day, <laughs> my, my neighbor says to me, you know, 
she saw my work and said, you should, you should meet Alex Lieberman. I said, are you kidding me? No way. You know, it's not going to happen. She said, let me, let me talk to him. I said, okay, fine. So she uh, made me put together a little portfolio, which I still have today. And she went up to see him. And then a few days later, I saw her in the hallway. And she said, hey, listen, I, I made an appointment for you to go Monday to see Alex. I said, what? Are you <laughs> she called him Alex. I said, Mr. Lieberman? I said, are you kidding me? No, I was, I was like frozen in fear. I just thought, what? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to see him. That's going to happen. Yes, you are. You're going to see him. I'm going to assist on it. I will take you if I have to. So, shit. So, I have to go. So, so long, long story short, yeah. what ended up happening, I uh, got my portfolio together. I was nervous as hell. I went up to Condé Nast office, which was over by uh, Lexington, uh, right near Grand Central Station back in the day. And uh, I shit into this beautiful room, well-appointed. It's all white. And I remember sitting on a couch. And a few minutes later, I was ushered into another room, the inner sanctum, where Alex Lieberman was sitting. I have to call him Mr. Lieberman, really, because he was a gentleman. It was this very patrician-looking guy, very elegant in his demeanor, and very soft in his demeanor. And he invited me to sit across from him on this kind of a Louis XVI desk. It's all white. And what struck me about him that was so amazing was the fact that here's the guy that runs Condé Nast. All he had on his table was a telephone, a notepad, a legal notepad, and a container full of pencils. That was his desk. And I was like, whoa, okay, this guy's really cool. So he looked at my book, he looked at it, and then he says to me, Helmut Newton. I said, oh, uh, yeah. I said, I can see you have Helmut Newton in here. I said, well, I shot I said, no, no, explain to me. I can see your influences. I said, oh, wow, okay. This guy knows what he's talking about. So he says to me at the end of the 15 minutes I had with him, he said, okay, I'm going to start you at the back of the book. And I said, sure, why not? I love that. I, I don't know what the hell he was talking about. I never heard of the back of the book. I know what that meant. It turns out the back of the book is where the accessories are, you know, bags and shoes and things like that. So that's where I started in 1979. And my career turned like on a dime. I really didn't care about rock and roll anymore, music. I was focused now on fashion. And that was my new wow, passion. What a, sort of a pivot. Yeah, that was a pivot. I went like, you know, uh, 180 degrees. Walking away from rock and roll to focus on essentially starting out again, although you had this great serendipitous introduction to Lieberman, is a risk. How do you perceive, let's say, risk and failure and confront fear? Because a lot of people wouldn't have put themselves in that situation. Well, for me, it wasn't really a risk. It was a further exploration of my, uh, my, my curiosity and my ability to do what I'm supposed to do, which is deliver the image. So in the context of fashion, in the milieu, it was always about marketing at the at the end of the day. It wasn't so much about my artistic expression. In in music, it was it was documenting the the environment, the situation. For me, it was really further exploration of my ability to deliver that image, and I had to understand I had to understand who the ultimate uh, consumer of the image is. Mm-hmm. And to understand that person, you have to observe a lot of things. <clears throat> that includes the kind of reader of the magazine, what they're looking for, what the editor's looking for. Okay, first I have to please the editor. And the editor kind of gives you guidance as to where they're going. And they're the director. So I'm there to make sure that they get what they need. I had to come up with seductive images. It's all about seduction and fantasy. It, 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 it was challenging because uh, other, you don't want to duplicate what others have done. You have to come up with something quite original. And, and exciting and motivating because as the readers turn in the pages of the magazine, they're basically overwhelmed with, a, even today, they're, they're overwhelmed with a flood of images. 
But the ones that catch their attention are arresting for whatever reasons that the photographer considers important. Mm -hmm. So you have to, to to make that happen in there. <clears throat> so it's it's about it's almost a psychological study of generating that image that's going to make that reader pause. And the masters at it were people, like I said, yeah, Luton, I you know, yeah. and he was, you know, he, he could he can bring you to that edge and he introduced sex into his into the work. But it was done in a refined way for that particular audience. And that's what I loved about him, the subtlety of uh, that seductive image. So I learned a lot from him. So I got at some point the opportunity to assist him on a few shoots. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot. It came to my studio, in fact, uh, one point uh, when we were, I was living in Soho, and he spent an entire afternoon going through all my proof sheets in my old file cabinet. About three or four months later, I realized by reading, a, there was a magazine, a popular magazine back in the day called Louis, and I saw some of my ideas in Louis. <laughs> so, wow, <laughs> that to me was flattering because I'd stolen a lot of his ideas from mm -hmm. watching his work and looking at his work over the years that it was influencing on me. So I was like, wow, uh, he actually got something out of me. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, wow. Say, genius steals. <laughs> it was awesome. I was, I was like floored when I saw it. I brought it up a few you know, months later when I saw him. He didn't remember what it was all about. I said, whatever. Yeah. You know, but it was cool. In part two, we delve into how Roberto is continuing to evolve his career through new multimedia expressions of his art and photography, as well as his pursuit of new entrepreneurial ventures that are centered around the development of hemp-based products, and in particular, a new supercar. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time. <laughs>